Welcome back. I want to start off with just a single question for you guys. And that question is, what can we know? What can we know certainly, genuinely, and with great certainty in our life? You see, you're in college, and so I imagine you must have some sort of answer of how it is or what it is you can know about something, right? We are here for knowledge. You want to understand something. I know at least five students who aren't here tonight because they're studying. They're trying to know. And so this question of what it is we know and how it is that we come to know it is something that's pretty important. And uh, we even seem to qualify levels of what we can know when we think of ter- or, uh, kind of schools of thought here on campus, right? How many of you have heard the phrase hard sciences versus soft sciences, right? There are these hard sciences where like this is truth and soft sciences like go team, rah, rah. Um, and this kind of originated in the 1800s where a guy named uh, August Kampf, uh, that's you got to get the in there, uh, he created a hierarchy of sciences. And this hierarchy he, he uh, kind of created based off the intellectual development and the complexity of the subject matter that that field wanted to study. And so up at the top you have astronomy, and then there's physics, and then there's chemistry, and then there's biology, and then there's social sciences. And so up top you've got Garrett Jolma, and down low you've got Faith and Katie. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the level that... <laughs> August said it, not me, um, that August created. And so those are for areas that we, gen- we, we generally consider sciences. But if you step outside of the sphere of sciences, that level of what it is we can know with certainty uh, becomes even more um, confused. Sure, we can know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or can we? But can we know which religion is true? Can we know which philosophical system is correct? Which worldview is most correlated to reality. What morality is there? And is morality even a thing? You see, to use a fancy word where if you go over to the, or now it's, what's the liberal arts building now? Ek, ek, ek. You go to ek hall and you'll hear words like, uh, like this. We have an epistemological problem, okay? An epistemological problem. And so epistemology is the study of knowledge or belief. It asks not only what can we know, but how is it that you can know it? How is it that you're able to put together information in a way which we can have certainty, where we can have faith and and really a concrete hope in it? You see, all sciences take root, and remember you go back to your science fair projects that you did, they take root in what is repeatable and what is observable. But we must ask, What's the standard of consistency and repetition, right? Aren't all of our findings ultimately just findings of a narrow scope? And that is when people started recording, this event happened. So can we really say that this has always been true? What's the standard where something is consistent? Was there ever a time where something wasn't consistent or wasn't observable? Uh, What is the measure of what it's consistent in regards to? If, if this is consistent, what's the measure of what is inconsistent? What are we comparing its consistency to? Are we just saying it's consistent? What we look, when we look at this world and we're trying to say what is what we know, are we saying, well, we know this is true because it's consistent in that it's consistent with itself, matter, the world, like what it is we can see. Is it just to be consistent with the world or is there another Uh, idea of what it should be consistent with. Say, should this be consistent 
with perhaps the nature and character of the God who created the world? What is the barometer of consistency? And all of this, you might be listening to this, and you're like, I walked into the wrong room tonight. Um, Sounds like mental gymnastics that we're trying to understand here, but this becomes personal when I come up to you or someone comes up to you and they say, what do you know? How do you know for certain? You say, there aren't many people who just walk up to me on the Oval and they're like, how do you know what you know, right? We don't do that. But what about, what about this? Outside of just scholastics and how it is you know what you know about your field of study, how do you know what you know about life itself? How do you have certainty about any sense of purpose you might have? Any meaning you seem to perceive in our world? What about the structure that we bank our lives on in terms of how we think this world will go if it keeps going the way it's going? You see, the challenge of what we can know for certain is what leads many people in, into this room. To hear about Christianity, to understand the gospel, they want a hope. I was meeting with a student the other day who'd only met me once or twice before and heard me speak, and he came to me and he said, I want that certainty. I want that hope. So the quest for what's certain is what leads people to the faith, but also in the six years we've been doing this, I've also seen that the quest for what is certain is oftentimes what leaves people from this room because they find it to be lacking. You see, college is good, and that it challenges our idea of what it is we believe and asks us to think deeply on the subject. But if we're going to think deeply about academics, if we're gonna think deeply about what Christianity is, we need to boil down all of that to this question. What is your confidence? What is the hope you have that you can point to when questions of knowledge or identity or morality or purpose are called into question. You see, this isn't a new dilemma. You see, it's not that we've become so enlightened and now we're thinking of things that other people were too dumb to think about. You see, a couple thousand years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a, in a town called Colossae. And he wrote to this church because what they knew and how they lived was beginning to be pressured and challenged by the society that they lived in. And this was true economically, and this was true theologically. You see, economically, Colossae was once this, just think of Detroit, once this booming metropolis of the sheep industry. They had good sheep there. And then uh, Laodicea kind of grew over here, and then Hierapolis grew over here, and the industry left, and now Colossae is kind of this ghost town. They don't even know who they are economically or as a town. And so like, we're not, we don't, we're not really sure who we are or what's cool about us. I mean, we've got these sheep pens that are pretty sweet if you're into that, um, but we don't really know where we stand. And then to further that point, this church thought they knew what they needed to know about God, right? The gospel had gone into, this is kind of modern day Turkey and they heard it and they believed it. And they're like, this is good. We love this gospel. But then people started pushing in on that gospel and they're like, well, that's not the gospel. You should be doing this or you should be thinking this way or you should be acting this way. They began to ask them questions like, why are you a Christian and not something else? What makes you a Christian? What makes you distinct in your belief that's different from my belief? And even more so, why does it always come down to the question of Christianity versus something else? And these are questions we face today in 2017, aren't they? What gives you the right to say that you 
have the true religion? Why do you act the way that you act? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Why do you believe what you believe? So what we want to do for this next while is dive down into the book of Colossians and see what Paul provides as our confidence in life. And our title kind of gives away the answer to this because the title of this series is All of Christ in All of Life. Because this, Christ in all of our life, is the center of what Paul is going to encourage the church with. What we can know for certain, what we can know for sure, is who Jesus is, And what Jesus has done is the starting point for all of our confidence and all of our thought. You see, what we're going to learn today is just this. In Paul's opening remarks, the passage that Katie just read to us in Colossians 1, this is what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see this. This sounds like a brain teaser, but I hopefully by the end it will make sense. What we know for certain is a fruit of knowing the gospel with certainty. What we know for certain is a fruit of knowing the gospel with certainty. And so the answer to what do you know as a Christian, regardless of the sphere of knowledge or the sphere of school that you're in, the answer is I know the gospel and everything else falls out of that. So that's what we're going to see today. Um, So let's pray. Lord, I'm excited. Um, It was great to gather together um, as this group of students and kind of look at Christian worldview for these last uh, seven weeks, but now it is exciting to kind of submit ourselves uh, again to a specific book of the Bible where we're not coming with agendas or what it is that we want to see, but instead we're letting you speak through your word um, so that we can encounter things that perhaps we don't see as a specific need in our life, but you see as a need for us because you've given us this word. And so Lord, I pray today that you frame as the centerpiece of all of our thought, of all of our life, the truth about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I pray that this changes not only how we view you, but it changes how we view our studies, how we view our career, how we view our friendships, and how we view um, everything else in our life. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So, uh, let's pick up, Paul opens this, this is a letter um, that was written, so he opens this letter with much how you would write a letter today, and we look at these first two verses in Colossians 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So I don't know how many of you guys, when you're doing devotions, like you, you start a new book, and we're like, all right, we're going to read Colossians. And you read those first two verses, you're like, yep, got it, moving on, right? We see this as like the introduction, the preamble to where the actual meat of the text is. But I want you to look specifically at what we know about Colossae, of how them wrestling with identity and wrestling with, is this for real? I want us to revisit the tone of what Paul is saying here. So look again, he says, Paul, an apostle. So apostle, the Greek word is just one that means sent one. Like Paul is saying, I am commissioned. And then look at what he says. He's not just commissioned on his own, but by the will of God. This activity that I'm doing, it is no accident. It is by the will and desire of God himself and of Timothy, our brother, a fellow witness to the saints. So saints, if you've been at Sovereign Hope the last few weeks, we've been looking at kind of uh, the Reformation in the Catholic Church, and saints are not these super elect superhero Christians. Saint just means the holy ones, those who have been made holy through faith. 
and the faithful brothers. So Paul's saying, you're not faithless, right? You're faithful. You are a faithful brother in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. God is not distant. God is not unknowable. But in the same way, a father knows his children and his children know the father. You can know God. You see this confidence that already Paul is building in this church. Look at what we know. Paul begins to say, this is what I know about me, this is what I know about you, and this is what I know about God. But the question we're asking is, how does Paul know this? If that's the question, if that's the very question that the Colossians are asking themselves, how do we know? Paul's answer, as we see in this text, is because Paul knew God. And God is the creator of the world. God is not a good observer. God is not a good scientist. God is the author. He's not observing and studying and makes a good interpretation on what he sees. He is creating, he is sustaining, and he is telling us the true reality of what is there. All of what we know, we know based on the God who made and governs all that we know. Right? If we want to know why things were created and why things are, we need to know the God who created them. And let me explain why this is significant. Let's contrast just two worldviews here. There's more than two, but I'm going to take kind of a secular or atheistic worldview first. And this is what it says. It claims to know that we know, okay, if we're just talking about how do we understand what it is we see, we know because it has faith that this world came to be at some point. This world was, was we, they wouldn't say created this, but this world happened. This world came into existence. And they weren't there to see how it was made. They didn't hear how it was made. But we can begin to make guesses as to how it was made by observing what was made. Does that make sense? They would say, hey, we don't know how it was made we didn't hear about how it was made. No one's telling us how it was made, but we can guess at how it was made by observing what was made. So that's an atheistic or a secular worldview. And now here's a Christian worldview. It claims to also have faith that this world came to be at some point. And while we weren't there to see it, the God who made the world wanted us to know it. And so he told us that he created. In the beginning, God created. Now, that might sound like a silly distinction right now, but I want, I want you to hear the distinction here. Both worldviews are based on faith. They're both taking into account something which they could not see. No one saw, no atheist saw the creation of this world. No Christian saw the creation of this world. So to come to a conviction on that, you're making a faith statement. And yet, one of them has knowledge of the basis of what is. And one has the best guesses that our observations can make. You see, when it comes to knowledge, even in regards to science, it is a distinctly Christian worldview which begins with knowledge instead of something. How do we know? Because God told us. It starts with what we know, not with what we don't know. It starts with the only truth that there is, where everything else says they're the ones who figured out truth, but they're starting in the dark. And that's not a statement of their neutrality. It's actually a statement of their ignorance, of not knowing. Because we can know God, we believe that we can know God's creation, right? That's why there are students in here who are off studying for Chem 141, 
because they believe that there's consistency in creation because God made it that way. So they're off studying that. We know um, that because how we've seen how God works in the Bible in relation to who he is, we can get glimpses into how God runs this world. It is organized. It is consistent. It has order. Everything we encounter in this world is not consistent at the level of some abstract law. Gravity isn't gravity because gravity exists. Gravity is consistent because God created it. It's consistent to who God is, not to what the law is. This is equally true in kind of this issue of science, but it's just as true in the area of theology. And it's this theological point that Paul is making to the people in Colossae. And so what's ironic here is to this church that is wondering, what is it we know? Paul immediately starts out giving them three things that they do know. Three things they can know for certain, and that's what I want to look at quickly tonight. First, Paul says, we can know hope. What can we know? We can know hope. Colossians 1 verses 3 through 5 says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul quickly points out two actions that this church is doing that leads Paul to be both thankful and also prayerful. And Paul is thankful and Paul is prayerful because these actions in this church are signs that Paul sees as being signs that they're genuinely converted. That these people really are Christian. Because if Paul saw these people as not being Christian, then he's like, no, you guys got it figured out. That wouldn't be loving of Paul. So if Paul's affirming them as Christian, he's looking to these two things as signs of their conversion. And these two signs are, are faith in Christ and love for the brothers. And here, when the Bible uses the term brothers, it's generally, specifically in this context, it's talking about those who are Christian with you, those who are in the church, not just everyone in general, but specifically Christians. Paul is saying that genuine confidence comes not just from having a faith in Jesus, but faith in Christ Jesus. So the word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name that sometimes they mess up and put in front. The word Christ is the Hebrew word for Messiah means the Savior. And so most of the time when biblical writers kind of switch it up from Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus, or you guys are looking backwards at me, when it goes this way to Christ Jesus from Jesus Christ, the author is generally trying to stress that this isn't just Jesus the dude. Specifically, think of Jesus as the Savior, the one who came to redeem, to restore, the anointed one that all of God's plan was set upon. This Jesus is the object of your faith, and when you have that faith, it produces a deep love for those who share in that faith. Now, a few weeks ago in our Is Christianity Relevant series, we looked at relationships. And we looked um, at how the gospel changes the way we interact with those around us. And if you consider yourself a believer in this room, how would you qualify? What would you point to as a sign of the love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If I said, do you love them? If I said, Brad, do you love Chase? How would you even think about that relationship? Do we quickly think of love in terms of like, well, I love in the same way the world loves, like, like they're my good friends. Like, yeah, I love that dude. But is that where we get our definition of what love is? Or do you love them in the way that the Bible calls you to love them? Do you lay down your life for them? 
Greater love has none other than this, than one should lay down his life for his brother. Do you see others as more worthy of honor than yourselves? Philippians 2. Are you loving them by caring for their own eternal health and encouraging them in serving their faith in Jesus Christ, seeing as what is most important to, at, in their life as them believing the gospel and growing in it? Are your words, are your conversations, are your activities with these believers seasoned with grace or are they thoughtless and trivial? For some of you, I imagine the answer in some areas is yes. That is what my love looks like with my friends. But then in other areas, for other friends, we imagine it's no, right? But whether the answer is yes or no, look back at the reason for the success you had or the lack of success in Colossians 1.5. Where does this faith and love come from? Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Why would we, so this is going to be a big theme in Colossians as we're going forward. There's a right belief, having faith, which produces a right action of loving one another. Why is it that you would think rightly about God and love others rightly in your own life? Paul says the answer here is only because you have a clear picture of the hope of the gospel laid up for you in heaven. If you have chosen, when you, we did that little self-assessment, have you done any of those things? If you answered yes to any of them, maybe on retreat, we were on retreat, we challenged people to have these kind of conversations with each other, um, to think through how we can help each other grow as Christians. If you did that on retreat, that wasn't as much you just being genuinely kind, that wasn't uh, us coming together and showing our great strength. If you labored for the love of a believer, that is a sign that you are responding to this overwhelming hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is an assurance that God has done great things in your life. Because Paul says here that you're only doing it because you see the hope laid up for you in heaven. I love that phrase, laid up for you in heaven. And the Greek term that laid up is, is as if it's taken away for safekeeping. It's stored up and away in the future. It's less like God put this joy in a cookie jar up on the top shelf and more like God has taken this joy and put it in a savings account to make it sweeter and better for you when that day comes. And that idea of that hope which is yet to come is distinct for two reasons. First is that grammatically, if you're looking back at your text, Paul equates this hope with the gospel. This is the hope you've heard. You heard it in the gospel. So when we think of the gospel, the gospel is a message of hope. And hope is always something that we know something about, right? Hope is always, uh, we, we always have hope in something which we have knowledge of. When we call people to hope, what we're doing um, is that we are saying, uh, we're considering what could be, and we're calling them to make a commitment to think about that. Right? We say there might be something wrong, there might be something lacking right now, but because of such and such, we know that one day we can have hope. Think of this. It's crazy busy in school right now. Snow, sleet, depending upon who you are, is falling outside. There are tests looming over us, but I could say, hey, 
because we know the end of the semester is coming, now we can do this. Because we know, right, there's this knowledge of what is to come, we say, have hope in that knowledge, and it changes what you're in right now. For instance, you study well, you have hope you pass the exam. Because your team has the right players, you hope you could win. Because this politician has the right values, you hope that they will win the election. Hope is always tied to what it is we know about the object of our hope. This is important because if the gospel is our hope, the second thing we must understand is, what is that gospel? What is that hope? Paul comes back to this theme later, which we'll get at one of the best texts uh, in this book, which is so rich. Uh, in Colossians 3, 2 through 4, Paul answers this question. He says this, So what is it that is laid up for you in heaven? Now we pick up in chapter 3. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. So if we're looking at what Paul says our hope is as a Christian, Paul says your hope as a Christian is in Christ himself. That one day, because we are in Christ, when Christ appears, so will all of our life. All of our hopes, all of our aspirations, all of our longings, and all of our confidence. Is there a lot of exciting things about the gospel, right? I have a wife. With my wife come things that get done that I always had to do that I don't have to do anymore. I don't have to cook dinners anymore. My wife loves cooking dinners for me. I don't have to do my laundry anymore. My wife sees that as a way where she can serve me. I don't have to yell to no one about the Titans losing a football game. She will sit there and let me yell with her, at her, around her during this context. But it would be foolish for me to look at cooking, laundry, and sports and say, that is why I love my wife. Right? But so frequently we look at the fruits of the gospel and we see that as the end in itself. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel is the good news that we will live eternity. The, in eternity, the gospel is the good news that one day we will live in a world where all the things that sin broke will be fixed. But when you think about the bottom of your hope, when you think about what it is here that Paul ties to your ability to think rightly and act rightly, to have deep faith and a right love, do you see the primary motivation in your life as Jesus himself? You see, if we want to believe rightly, if we want to act rightly, we must learn to hope rightly in Jesus Christ. You see, the call to Christianity, when, when people start, when we start progressive values, start saying, well, that's outdated, or challenges in life come, and, and people are getting sick, or you're going through hardship, the challenge is, or that the solution is not to hope in something different, but to hope in the same thing better. To look at what is true in the gospel and say, this is sufficient, because this is where Jesus is. And so that means that if we look at our life, and we see areas where growth is needed, we know that growth only comes through understanding the gospel in greater clarity. You've heard the proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But Paul's point here is that hope made clear makes faith 
rich. When we have a certain clear picture of our faith in Jesus Christ, we can believe rightly and have great confidence in all of life. And this is because the second truth that Paul says we can know is we can know this. We can know power. We can know power. Let me uh, look with me at the first part of verse 5 and the last part of verse 6 where it says this. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. So Paul is saying something really bold here, okay? What Paul just said when he said um, that it's be- we act and think only because of the gospel, what Paul is saying is that in moments where you are living rightly, you're saying, man, I can't believe I responded well to that. Or isn't it amazing that I sinned less last week than I did this week? Or isn't it great that I had that awesome experience of worship when I was listening to Andrew Pack on retreat and he was saying those things about the gospel and my heart was warmed? What Paul is saying is that's only happening because of the gospel, right? We don't puff our chests up and we say, man, look at how I figured that out. It's God's grace in showing us the beauty of the gospel. But then the other bold thing is that if you look at your life and you see areas of lack, if you see areas of struggle, if you see areas where your life is not aligning with your doctrine, Paul is saying to you it's because you don't see the gospel clearly. Those are bold things. For Paul, the apostle Paul, to sit in front of a church and to say, you're wrestling because you don't see the gospel clearly. So why is it that Paul can say that? Paul's saying that because of what we just read. That the gospel of Jesus is the most powerful news the world has ever heard. You see, we all wrestle with uh, the ineffectiveness of our human bodies, right? I can't, no one ever taught me. Uh, so I'm 6'2". In my peak, I sh- uh, it was reasonable that I should have been able to dunk. When I was in college and I was hitting the gym, I should have been able to at least like grab solid rim. But no one ever taught me how to jump. It sounds stupid, but there's like, there's like I can jump higher just standing still than I can like getting low and like, I don't even know, there's this, there's this thing with your legs you're supposed to do, and I can't. Like when I jump, if I'm running, like, oh, I'll jump higher this time, I run and then I just stop and then I jump again. It's like I'm actually just more tired than if I would have just stood still and jumped higher. And that's this limitation that I have. And we all have limitations in terms of what we want, too. Man, we want to learn things in lecture and never have to return back to our notes. We want to invest our time and never have to worry about it not coming back. We fail to get the jobs we want. We wrestle to bring consistent order to our studies or to our finances. And all of these are symptoms of our lack of power and effectiveness. There are so very few things that we can put our energy towards and have it accomplished perfectly. But did you see what Paul just said about the gospel? Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. The first thing is the gospel came to them. 
They didn't go to the gospel. They weren't out there trying to get this self-improvement. And they're like, well, this is good. We've surveyed everything. This seems to be what's best. We're going to give this the official go-ahead of anyone who claims to be a Christian. No, the gospel sought them out. The gospel came to this church. The gospel was the actor, and they were the recipient. And so how did the gospel come? Well, it came in two ways. One, it came when Jesus came and lived on the earth and died and rose again. But then it came a second time as men carried this message of Jesus. And as that gospel came in Jesus and went with the witnesses, it bore much fruit. What Paul says here is that it was increasing. Now, the gospel wasn't increasing in the sense that we might think of increasing. It wasn't that once there was this really simple message and then as people started like talking about it more and oral tradition and the church history that there once was this simple core message of Christianity and then the scope and content of the gospel grew and now we've got this big blob of theological truth. Okay? It's not that the gospel, the good news, grew, but the word here that he uses as increase is the same word that Mark uses in Mark 4 verse 8 where he says, Jesus says this, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. So when the gospel was increasing, it meant the fruit of the gospel was growing. There was more fruit. The size of the fruit, the scope of the fruit was increasing. And that fruit, the fruit the gospel produces, is salvation. You may have heard, I don't know how many of you have taken uh, a religious history class here at the U yet? Any of you? How many of you have taken um, uh, kind of history around uh, zero, up until Middle Ages? Okay, Western Civ. And so, big thing for them, Emperor Constantine, right? You've heard about this, right? The only reason that Christianity exists, Christianity was this dying small sect of religion, but then in thir- uh, 313, I believe, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, had this conversion, and he went on to be emperor of Rome. And so he, in his power, made Christianity the official religion of Rome, and that's why Christianity exists. From then on out, Christianity was less equated with doctrinal fidelity, and it was more just a sign of whoever was in power. The narrative of secular history is that the power of Christianity is in the power of Christian men to create a Christian culture. If you have enough power to protect Christianity, that's what Christianity will be. But the Bible describes the exact opposite. You see, the power of the gospel isn't that important men were saved. The power of the gospel is that weak men were saved. The power of the gospel is that dead men were saved. You see, the Bible, and we'll talk more about this when Stephen preaches next week, says our biggest problem is that our hearts do not want to worship God. And because of that, we do not believe that God is God. And that root sin is the sin of unbelief. That sin of unbelief is the disease for which everything else is a symptom. So for the gospel to believe by anyone isn't a stroke of luck or human power, but it is the amazing power of God to open someone's blind eyes and change a dead heart. No one accidentally or for cultural purposes becomes converted to Christianity. True conversion doesn't happen out of social pressures. It happens out of God's good grace. Christianity doesn't exist because men made it happen. 
Christianity exists because the gospel is the power of God to save in our world. And for 2,000 years, this gospel has been going across borders into foreign languages, traversing multiple languages and saving souls all along the way. So think about this. No idea of man has ever been more pervasive through cultures and times than the gospel. Think about it. Not democracy, not progressive thought, not even a Western view of romance has garnished such worldwide relevance as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel has, and it's because God is the God of salvation. And while there is much work to do among the nations, among people who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hold great hope because we know the gospel is able to save to the uttermost. The gospel is stronger than the unbelief of the most hardened atheist or pagan. You see, you may fear being on the wrong side of history, but a right fear is being on the wrong side of the God of history. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What can we know? We know that the gospel is the power of God in this world. And the gospel will go forward as believers carry it onward. And we can know this with certainty because look at how Jesus describes the end of the world happening in Matthew 24, 14. He says this, uh, 24, 14. Let me find my right verse here. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. You see, the gospel will win because the gospel is the power of God. That brings me to our last point. Why does God want the gospel to go forward? Because we can know the gospel. Returning to the question of how we can know or who is it that can say what is right? Who is it to say that this is certain? We can answer both questions with one word, God. How can we know for sure? Because of God. Who can say what is right? God can. Look back at Colossians 1, 6 through 8, where Paul says this, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So how can we know anything? Because God exists. How can we know God? Because the gospel saves us. And how can we know that the gospel saves us? Paul already answered this. How do you know that the gospel has saved you? How can you know for certain that you in here are no longer under the wrath of God, but are under the grace of God? Look at the last part of verse six. As it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Hearing the gospel and understanding the gospel in truth is the key to being saved by the gospel. You see, actually the Greek is better translated as this, as you heard it and understood fully 
the grace of God in truth. So the Greek word there is not just mere understanding, but it's this word that carries with it this understanding at a full, at a deep, at a complete level. And so if you're a person who wants to have hope, who you look at all of the voids you have in your life, you look at the lack of certainty you may have, you look at the challenges which may come, you look and want hope out of the hopeless things, then the Bible says you must not only hear, but understand the gospel. Hearing the gospel does not save you. Knowing the gospel exists does not save you. Awareness of the gospel is not synonymous with understanding the gospel. Familiarity with the gospel is not the same as faithfully trusting the the gospel. But when we see the gospel, we hear it with our ears and we wrap our hearts around it to know it. Not only are we knowing the good news of God, but what we just saw is we're experiencing the power of God. You see at GCF, uh, here at large groups, at retreat, at our spring retreats, in discipleship, we are passionate about helping you understand the gospel. So much so that you will probably get sick of Stephen and Rachel and myself asking you, what is the gospel? What does the gospel say about that? Remind me again what the gospel is. And you'll be like, stop it, I get it. It almost becomes here like this phrase where it's like we're gospel-centered and all that means is that uh, the center of every sentence, the gospel's in there. Like we just say it a lot. But why is that? Man, we want that to be true because we believe what the Bible is saying here. That there is nothing more important to right thoughts and right action, to hope and love, than having a full and true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most important truth you will ever know. And I love what Paul says here because Paul knows where we're weak, right? Paul was a human. Paul worked with humans and he knew exactly what we would do. The moment we say, well, you can't just understand it at a cursory level. I want you to know it fully. I want you to know it in truth. I want you to know it really, really, really well. We throw up our hands and be like, who can know it? Isn't this just another study in dead, dry religion? Can't it just be that I love God and let that be the rest? Why do I have to know what the gospel is? I love God, God loves me, Jesus saves, don't put a damper on my experience. It's like we take this book and it becomes legalese, like do I really have to know this? Do I really have to understand it? But then Paul says this, the gospel that you heard, that Epaphras told you, that's the gospel. You see, the gospel is huge, it is infinite. It is massive. And yet it is so simple that this little guy with a weird name came into Colossae and just spoke it to him. Right? We can know the gospel. God wants you to know the gospel. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to hear it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to push on it and to prod it and to inspect it and to make it so well worn in your heart that it becomes those beautiful pair of broken in shoes that fit when nothing else does that you turn to when there are moments of hardship or identity crisis or pain or suffering or joy where we get out that gospel and we say, this is what I know. This is my hope. This is my salvation. Before I know anything else, I know that Jesus has saved me in the gospel. This gospel, the words which you hear on repeat in the church are the most significant, is the most significant piece of information you will ever have 
and God gave it to you. God wants you to know it. To assume the gospel is to leave yourself in danger of missing out on the power and hope of God himself. But to have that gospel is to set yourself in the middle of the only thing that we can know with certainty. And that is that we are broken beyond repair. But God, through his son, came to die for our sins so that our punishment might be taken away and we might be restored to God forever through faith. Do you know that Jesus? Do you know that gospel? Is this truth so ingrained in you that I love what, uh, is it, I think it's later in Colossians, that the word of Christ dwells in you richly. I mean, don't you guys have songs that just dwell in you richly? Like songs from childhood that you grew up singing or songs that you love when they came on the radio. And there are songs like we know the chorus to. There are songs we know the, the verses to. But there are songs like we know. I remember there was this song, uh, there's this live album of, uh, it was actually Led Zeppelin, so don't make me out to be a Satanist or anything. But I listened to this live album so much of Led Zeppelin. There was one part where uh, the microphone got feedback in the live album. And whenever I listen to a recording of it, I wait for that feedback. It just, I, I, that, that's, I listened to it so much that I knew everything about it. And when something was missing from it, I knew it. Do we have that same experience with the gospel? So in Kentucky, Brad, have you ever been to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky? Yep. All right, so there's this cave called Mammoth Cave. And there are select caverns inside this cave, which are the huge kind of typical caverns you think of, like stalactites, drippy water, dark light, baths, all that stuff. Um, but this cave system is the largest cave system known to man. In fact, it's almost two times larger than the next largest cave system. Man has already covered inside of it. They've already explored and been to 405 miles of this cavern. And they still have no idea how much farther this goes. So to put that into perspective, that's a cave that stretches nearly from Missoula to Seattle. Seattle is 470 miles from Missoula. This is a cave system of 405 miles. Now, it is no contradiction for a scientist or a spelunker to stand in the midst of one of those big grand caverns and to say two truths. This is a cave, and I have no idea the depth of it. I know this to be what it is, a cave, but I have no idea the size, the scope, and the wonder of it. You see, to understand the gospel truly is not a call to understand the gospel exhaustively. Because we can't. It is incomprehensible. We cannot, this side of death, understand the way that our sin insulted a perfect cosmic God. And just because of that difference, like if, that, if we had perfect knowledge of everything, we still couldn't understand it because of that difference. Now take that and like manage the fact that we struggle in our basic public speaking classes. 
Our capacity to be amazed is limited and the gospel is endless. We will never understand the beauty and power of the gospel. It reaches far beyond what we can ever comprehend. But to understand the gospel fully is a call to understand a cave when you see one. This is the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. This is the gospel. How do I know it? Because I see what Jesus did. I see my sin. I see his death. I see his resurrection. We should be able to say with great clarity what God has given us with certainty that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. And then we spend the rest of our life spelunking the truth of that cave. We live our lives knowing the unknown depth of the gospel. And we can know truth because the gospel is a sign that we're saved by God. And if we know God, we can know all things. So my question is, not do you believe that, but do you believe the gospel? Because without the gospel, we can't know anything because we are blinded to reality. But if we know the gospel, we have certainty unshakable. We have confidence immovable. And so what we do together as GCF, as the church, is we go arm in arm to understand more fully, to hope more certainly, to believe more sincerely, and to love more actively through the gospel hope we have in Jesus Christ. I want to close by just praying this passage for us. A prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. This is what Paul says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, GCF, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend altogether what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think, according to the power already at work within us through the gospel, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.